Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Well, before we get to Ephesians 4, I want just to, to talk with you a little bit this morning, and I want to tell you a little bit of, of a new habit that I've been implementing in my own life. I'm only like 10 days into this. They say it takes 30 days to form a habit, so I've, I haven't got there yet. But for the last 10 days or so, I've adopted a new rule for myself, and in an effort to grow a little bit of self-discipline, as well as lose a few pounds, which would be a, a great idea, I've decided to do intermittent fasting. And my rule is that from 7 p.m. until noon the next day, I can't eat. That's my new rule. And I, I don't say that to be like, oh, yeah, I'm awesome. I, you know, I don't eat for that time. Like, if anything, the fact that I need a rule to grow discipline and, like, lose weight probably speaks more to my immaturity than anything else. But uh, it's, it's, been, it's been a journey. And I've been reminded over the last 10 days or so of a truth that I've seen in my life like a million times, but afresh and anew, I've seen this truth, that I am a bag of contradictions. Like on one hand, I want to do intermittent fasting. Like I've, I, want to, I want to grow in discipline. I want to sleep better. I want to wake up feeling a little better and a little lighter. Like I, I want to do this. On the other hand, I want to eat Oreos at 10.30 at night. Anyone with me? Anyone else want to eat Oreos? If you're a night bug like me, I'm a night owl. Like, they are calling my name. My hunger cravings are the strongest at like 11 p.m. Like, it's, 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 it's a tough road. But I've, I've, who am I really? Like, do I want to do this? Do I, do I want to grow? Do I want to do, yes, I do. Do I want to eat junk food as well? Yes, I do. I want to do both, Right? And this, if you pay attention to your own life, you see this at play all the time. You see where you really want to do something, but you also really want to do entirely the opposite of that thing. It happens all the time. And I was reminded of this truth specifically in relationship to change. Uh, we have a unique relationship as humans with change. On one hand, we hate change, and which is understandable. Like no one wants their life to be entirely unpredictable and it to be topsy-turvy all the time. Like I get that. We like stability. We like rhythms. Many times we're creatures of habit. Oftentimes we don't like change. Uh, in, in the pastoral world, they tell you if you begin to pastor a church for the first 12 months, for the first year, change as little as humanly possible because the congregants will not want you to just come change stuff. I even learned from another pastor the, the old adage that uh, only wet babies like change, but even they cry about it, which is true many times. But on the other hand, we like crave change. We, we really want it. We spend large chunks of our time kind of mentally beating ourselves up because we haven't changed enough or we haven't hit this milestone or we thought we would be there by now. Like we do that to ourselves all the time. We, we beat ourselves up because we haven't changed enough. We envision, oftentimes, we dream. And what do our dreams and our visions have? They have a preferred future. They envision change, right? It's like my bank account is overdrawn, but I dream of the day where there will be a savings fund and it won't be overdrawn anymore. 
or I am envisioning what will change in my body when my diet is done or this exercise program is done. Think of the pounds that I will shed or think of the inches I will lose. Like we envision these things and we, we think and crave of change. I peeked at the New York Times bestseller list this week and there were a lot of books on there, but there were a few that had been on there for like a, a long time, like three, four years and the novels get on there and then the novels tend to roll off. They don't last that long. But there were two books in particular that caught my eye. One had been on there for 194 weeks, more than three years on the New York Times bestseller list called Atomic Habits. I don't know if any of you have, have read this book, very uh, popular in, in life and in business world even. The subtitle of Atomic Habits is that tiny changes make remarkable results. There was another book that had been on there even longer, 306 weeks, called The Subtle Art of Not Caring. Uh, that's a paraphrase because the, the actual title is not church appropriate. But the subtitle was A Counterintuitive Approach to Living the Good Life. And I put this before you because today I want to talk about change. And specifically, I want to talk about how to change not just for the better, but for the best. And what does the Bible say about how we as people could change literally for the best? And this is so in line with our new sermon series. If you're new today or perhaps you're not new today, but you missed last week, we started last week a brand new sermon series for this fall called Practicing the Practices. And you can go back on the podcast and listen to it or go on YouTube and watch it or something. But the, the big idea of, of this series is that Jesus had followers. Jesus had disciples. You could call them apprentices. And there was a path for apprenticeship under Jesus that was very standard. And the same path applies for us, that if you wanted to follow Jesus, first of all, you wanted to be with him, but then you wanted to be like him. And you were like him primarily through absorbing his truth and practicing his practices. And that idea of practicing the practices is what we're, we're aiming towards and we'll get more, more, more narrow-minded as we go along. But if you could do that, if you could be with Jesus and be like Jesus, then eventually you could join him on mission and you could do what he did in the world. Now, all of this idea of apprenticeship under Jesus, it was all about change. It was all about changing people's perspectives, changing people's habits, and making them look a little less like they did when he found them and more like him as time went on. And today I want us to just try to wrap our heads around change and changing for the best. So I have three questions for you this morning. Very simple message, you can, anyone can follow along no matter if you have a church background or not. And here are the three questions. Number one, what changes us? Number two, how does Jesus wanna change us? And number three, why should I take the Jesus path? What changes us and how does Jesus want to change us and why should I take the Jesus path? So let's just back up and consider for a moment what changes us. And I put it as what changes us, not what could change us or are we changing? No, 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 we are changing. Like, let's get that straight, first of all. To be human is to be dynamic. It is to be changing, like you know this by now, that the, the sands of time are constantly shifting beneath your feet and you are a very dynamic individual. Your age is changing, your body is changing, oftentimes our taste preferences are changing, ever 
experience that. Like they say every 10 years or something, your taste buds change. I now like buffalo chicken. I hated it before, but suddenly I do. Your habits, your season of life, all these things are changing, right? So next time you go to the class reunion and someone hasn't seen you in 10 years and they come up to you and they say, you haven't changed a bit. Just tell them you're a liar. No, don't do that. (laughs) Say it softer, but that's not true. You may look roughly the same. You may kind of have the same sense of humor. You may enjoy the same hobbies, but you are changing and not just a bit, like a lot. You're changing. You are. But what changes us? Everything about that? What forms us? There's a lot of answers to that. There's a lot. But I think that there are a select few like staples in the pantry of change that if you think about them for a minute, you'll know they change you. So one would be our environment. Your environment, whether it be the country that you live in that has an effect on you and how you live and how you think, the state that you live in, even more specifically, kind of the the culture that you live in. We know Pennsylvania is very different across the state, but here in Western PA, like there's there's a Western PA way of thinking and doing in life. And I've learned this, I've, I'm not from here. Do I have any, any transplants, meaning you're not from the area, you weren't born, you weren't raised in this area, but you moved to this area later on in life? Where are my transplants at? Okay, you're gonna definitely identify with this, but the rest of you probably will. Here's what I've learned. Eight and a half years of living in, Cal- in not California, we came from California, living in Pennsylvania. The more you're in Pittsburgh, the longer you're in Pittsburgh, the more you become like Pittsburgh. That's what I've learned. And I see this in my life all the time. Like me and my boy went to the Steelers game last week. Justin mentioned it. What an experience. It was, <laughs> I've been to some good games. That was a bad, it was painful, right? Like in the list of pain, there is birth and a baby, kidney stones, watching the Steelers week one. That, that's how it goes. <laughs> like it was, it was terrible. I would have never gone to a Steelers game. I would have never cheered for them. I love the Steelers. I'd cheer for them. They're my team now. I would have never done that if not for living in Pittsburgh, right? When I lived in California, this is not an exaggeration. This is not hyperbole. I I did not know one person who camped. I didn't know a soul who camped. I knew a lot of people. I didn't know anybody who owned a camper. I didn't know you could own camp. Like that was a thing that was new. Like it took me years to wrap my head around, like, you, you did what? Like, you found the log cabin that William Penn built, like, hundreds of years ago, and you bought your acreage, and it has an outhouse, and now you go there for fun on the weekends. Like, that was a whole new thing I didn't understand. We've been here eight and a half years. We haven't camped one time. I don't have a desire to camp. But about last summer, me and Maggie looked at each other, and we said, There must be something to this camping thing. Like everybody does it. So you know what we did this summer? We did not go, no, I'm kidding. We we went camping. We did, we went camping. We We got a camper. We went up to Clear Creek. We were there for a few days. The kids crawled around on Beartown Rocks. And man, we had a blast. Like it was so much fun. Not like go buy a camper this winter and do it a lot fun, but we'll do it again next year for a couple days. Like that much fun. We'll repeat it, you know? We had a great time. It's, it's rubbing off on us. If that's not proof enough, I went fishing a few weeks ago. <laughs> now, if you, I know, if you know me, 
you know that's like Superman ingesting kryptonite. Like that's not, that's not my cup of tea. But we decided we were, gonna, we were gonna go fishing. So we got our little poles and our little tackle box. I don't even know what you're supposed to have in a tackle box, but there's something in there. We went, to, uh, we went to Fox Chapel. There's a park in Fox Chapel. I don't know if, you've, if you know this park, but I've, I've been there enough. I've seen people fishing and they're always pulling fish out of it. Probably because they stock it. Um, I'm not sure even how you stock a pond. I imagine like semi-tractor trailers, like dumping fish in there. But however you do it, I know there's lots of fish in there. Like we, we won't fail. Like this, it's a surefire thing. Everybody I see there is pulling fish out of this thing. So this locked and loaded, we're gonna have fish. So there we were casting and casting and getting the line cut in the tree and casting. <laughs> like there we were, not a single, not a bite, not a nibble, nothing. And along Bebop's this 10-year-old, about from me to that speaker, and he starts throwing in, I'm, if I'm lying, I'm dying. Within 10 minutes, the kid pulled out eight fish. <laughs> and we're sitting there like, what is going on? You know? And finally, we looked over at him, and his mom was there. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what are you using? She said, we're using Big Red. I'm like, the chewing gum? She's like, no, like the word. I had never heard of a big red worm, but now I know that's a thing. That's a worm. Come to find out, I think we had like largemouth bass, like lures on our hooks. And apparently bluegills don't eat those. So it, it didn't work out well. We caught zero fish because they were out of worms. By the, I mean, the, they had caught so many fish, they were done. But next time, now we'll know. Now we'll get a fish next time. But this place, here's the point. This place, it has an effect on you. On all of us, right? Your environment, your culture, there are norms and they shape you and they change you whether you realize it or not. It shapes you, it changes you. You are also shaped and formed by the truths or the stories that you believe. We are narrative animals. We love stories. We love plots. We love novels. We like our, our music to maybe even tell a story as it, as it sings to us. Like, that's just who we are as people. And the books that you read and the music that you listen to, it all communicates to you whether you realize it or not, and you will start to buy hook, line, and sinker certain stories. Some are good, some are profitable, some are not. But there are stories that you believe for example, one of the narratives that's very, very popular in our culture right now, especially amongst like my generation or younger, is that tradition kind of holds you hostage. Like the norms and tradition and sometimes even family values hold you hostage. So what you need to do is you need to look deep in your heart and you need to find your truth and your path and whatever you believe will make you happy. And you pursue that at all costs. Don't let anybody or anything stand in the way of your inner happiness or, or your inner desires. If tradition doesn't fit what you want for you, then buck tradition and go, go with the route of your desires. If you think I'm joking, just watch a Disney movie. Not all of them do this, but like 75% of them have the same plot, right? Be done with tradition, pursue what I, what I think is right in my own heart. For example, Elsa... She was supposed to be the good girl she always had to be, right? Until she let it go. And she, she became a, a frozen princess. <laughs> Moana was supposed to be a landlocked princess. That's what tradition said, but she became a wayfinder. Nemo was supposed to stay close to the reef. 
but he wanted to explore, so explore he did. Jasmine was supposed to marry a prince, and in so doing, secure an international alliance, but, you know, princess schminces, who cares about them? Aladdin, he was the man. Little Mermaid was supposed to stay under the sea, but man, above the sea, that would be better. Even Belle, Belle knew it. She sang it, didn't she? There must be more than this provincial life. She knew there's more than tradition and what, what was supposed to be normal. There was, there, she didn't know there was a beast for her, but there was. <laughs> now, if you, if you buy that story, the story that tradition could be good, could be bad, eh, I don't know, but I need to look inside of me and find my truth and pursue that at all costs. If you buy that, does that have an effect on you? Sure it does. If you believe that story, whether you've cognitively ever realized you believe it or not, and you buy that, that'll absolutely have an effect on you. It'll affect the way that you view God because now it's either God's word is supreme truth or my word and my way is supreme truth and you have to choose. That way says my way works. You think that'll have an effect on your family and your relationships? that it will move you away from honoring your parents, sacrificing for them and putting your own happiness first? You think it'll have an effect on marriages? Holy smokes, we're seeing an effect on this on marriages. I mean, we have been a divorce culture for quite some time. This is not new for us, but when people are getting divorced is, is different now. It used to be that if you had kids, you probably weren't getting divorced, even if you were unhappy. You were, you were going to stay through it until the kids got at least out of the house, and then maybe you would consider that. But every social study ever done by anybody says that the kids are better off with two parents in the home, and financially, uh, emotionally, academically, that, that that always just works best. But there's, there's a new version of, I need to pursue my happiness so much so, that even if it's worse off for the kids, who cares? Hang it. Right? Th these stories have an effect on us. They shape us. I'm not trying to give you a lecture on marriage and divorce this morning or a lecture on individualism. All I'm trying to say is the stories that you believe affect and shape and change you without fail. You're also shaped not just by your environment or your stories, but the habits that you hold. We spent some time here last week, so I won't belabor it. But what you do does something to you. It shapes you and molds you and changes you. And if you form a habit, that habit will become a way of life. That'll become part of your character oftentimes. That will shape your future and your destiny. Your habits have a profound impact. You also find that your relationships have an impact. Everybody knows this. You don't have to look at the Bible. And I'll prove this from the Bible in a minute. We're going to get there. But your relationships affect you, good and bad. That's a two-way street. There's a lot of studies done recently on top performers at work and they'll shuffle the deck at work and they'll seat people in different cubicles or in different offices. And what they're finding is that if you can get in close proximity to a top performer, maybe your office is next to theirs or maybe you're within 10 feet of them in the cubicle farm, that if you are not like their friend, but you're just a fly on the wall in close proximity to them, that people's performance raises about 10 to 12% just by being near someone. Like your friends affect you. I was thinking about this uh, just last night, actually, and the song from Wicked, the musical, came to my head, which I understand you're camping, probably not watching musicals. I get it. But 
my wife loves Wicked the Musical. And uh, if you love Wizard of Oz, and you would love it too, the backstory to the Wicked Witch of the West. And there's this moment, this beautiful song, where Glinda and Alphaba are singing to each other, and they sing this line on friendship that, I don't know if I've been changed for the better, but I know I've been changed for good. I don't know if you've had a positive impact on my life, but I know you've had a permanent impact on my life. I know that you and our relationship has affected me. And that's so true. It's so true that our relationships affect us. Now, I could take you to so many places in the Bible to show you this. But for example, Ephesians 4 is where I want to be this morning. This is Paul writing to this young church in the city called Ephesus. Ephesus is a first century uh, metropolitan area. It's a hub of commerce. It's a lot happening. And there are these new Jesus followers, these new apprentices of Jesus. And Paul tells them, you are being shaped and formed in these ways. It's not good for you. And then I want you to be shaped and formed in these ways. Look at verse number 17 of Ephesians 4. This I say, therefore, I testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth, or from this day on, don't walk as other Gentiles walk. What does he say? He says, there is a common way of doing things. There is an environment. There is an acceptable culture amongst the Gentiles that is just the way it goes. It's the culture. It's the waters that you're swimming in. And I, I want you to swim upstream. I want you to go against that environment. Here's what he says about their environment. They walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened. They're alienated from the life of God through ignorance that's in them because of the blindness of their heart. What is he talking about? He's talking about the stories that they believe. He calls it blindness of heart or understanding darkened or vanity of their mind or alienated through God and their thoughts and ignorance. But he's talking about what happens up here. There's an environment that the Gentiles have. There are common stories that they believe. There's, there's a narrative that they're spinning and these things are not fitting. They're not healthy for you. He goes on to say, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness lasciviousness. You say, oh, haven't heard that word recently. I know. It's an old word. Sexual lewdness is what it means. They've given themselves over to whatever goes sexually. And to work all uncleanness, which tells you the Bible has uniformly said there's a clean version of sexuality and there's an unclean version of sexuality. It's not anything goes. They've given themselves over to this with greediness. Simply put, they have they have a culture and an environment. They have stories and truths that they believe. There's a narrative that they're spinning. There's also habits that they have adopted. That there's these habits of sexuality and these habits of what they do with their money and that they're greedy. Sound familiar at all? Like old days, not old problems. Like what we're facing today is, is nothing new. Here they are struggling with sexuality, struggling with greediness. And Paul says, I don't want that for you. For sake of time, I'm not going to keep reading, but he begins to prescribe what would be appropriate. It's interesting, though, that you say you left out their friendships. Paul didn't when he wrote to the Corinthians. He wrote to the Corinthians, and he mentions the people of Ephesus. 
he calls them actually the beasts of Ephesus, like these, these people that are anti-Jesus. And he tells in that context, he tells the Corinthians, do not be deceived, do not, do not be fooled. Evil communication corrupts good manners. These relationships with these people are going to have an impact on you and they're going to form you in negative ways. You find that there's this pattern, and, and you know this. I don't actually need the Bible to tell you that. Like, you probably would have already agreed with me that, yeah, my environment and, and the stories that I believe and, and these things do shape me, but they do. And what you find is that Jesus has a way that he wants to shape his people, his apprentices, his followers. And it's kind of the same program, but with his own content, Right? We mentioned this at the beginning, but just to help it all make sense. Here is what Jesus had for a path of discipleship or apprenticeship. To be with him, to be like him, through his teaching and through his practices and all that happened in community, right? So think about it. He wants you to be with him. You could put it this way. He wants an environment of his presence. Not just I'm with all these people, but I'm with him all the time. If you grew up in church or you've been a Christian for any length of time, you would know Jesus isn't literally here in person physically, but he left us his spirit. That's how we walk with him and talk with him, that, there's, that he gives his spirit as kind of an antidote to what would be a normal environment or a negative environment. There are stories, there are narratives that our culture tells, but Jesus has a body of truth. And part of being a disciple was you wanted to absorb his teaching. Why? Well, partly because it now acts as a filter or a grid by which you can push the stories from your music or the stories from your favorite show or the stories from your, your mom or your dad or anybody. You can push those through his truth and find out, does it line up? Does it not line up? How does this work? Jesus offers his practices as a way, honestly, to combat many times our negative habits and practices. We're, we're all a mixed bag. Like, you all have good habits in your life. You're not all bad. You also have some bad habits in your life. You're not all good. So do I. You also have some habits that are missing that would be really helpful if they were just there, but they're nowhere to be found. And he offers like a way of doing life, like his words and his ways. And when you think about it, it's, it's very countercultural many times. Like in a day of rugged individualism, Jesus says, why don't you go serve people? Like, don't put you first. Don't pursue your desires and what would make you happy. Why don't you figure out what they need, what would, what would be a blessing to them, and why don't you serve them? See if that doesn't work. Some of you have tried the pursue my own happiness at all costs and it, you don't realize it immediately, but it doesn't take that long. Oftentimes a decade or so for you to wake up and realize this ain't working. Like this, this is not producing a good life in me. Jesus offers habits that are, that are very countercultural. Like we live in an age that is rush and go, 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 uh, microwave, instant, Amazon Prime to my house. And there are lots of practices of Jesus that are like, slow it down. Stop, time out. Take a Sabbath, take a day off. Spend some time praying. Just stop, let everything set to the side and just talk to your heavenly father, right? What is that? That is, to steal a line from Jordan Peterson's book, it's an antidote to chaos in many ways. 
It's a way to help you and to form you. And he does all of this in the context of community, right? There's a church meant to be relationships with other apprentices of Jesus that they're trying to learn and they're trying to form these habits and they're trying to be with Jesus. And when you can put those relationships together, you have a great chance of growing and flourishing. And all of this takes time. All of this is, is not easy. It oftentimes is, is anti what you would normally do, but Jesus offers a program and it's, it's not all that different than what you would normally find shapes you. There's an environment, there's truth, there are habits, there are relationships, all meant to make you more like him. And here's the million dollar question. Why would you want the Jesus path? Why should anybody buy into what Jesus said and what Jesus did? Why should anybody buy into Jesus's words and Jesus's ways? Gandhi had words and ways. Apparently, Disney has words and ways. Muhammad had words and ways. Why would I buy Jesus? Why would I buy any of them? Why not just pursue my own words and my own ways? Because after all, I didn't meet Gandhi and I didn't meet Muhammad. And Jesus, he's, he's not around for me to talk to him face to face. So why don't I just pursue? I, if anything, I know me. Why don't I just trust my own? That's a fair question. Why would you Say, Jesus, I want your truth to be my truth, even if it goes against my grain. Jesus, I want your ways to be my ways. Well, there's a lot of answers to that. I don't have time this morning to give them all to you. For starters, you could say, like, he rose from the dead. Like, that would be maybe something to tip the hat towards, like, you should listen to him, right? Like, that's unique. I don't know if you know that. Raising from the dead is, is not a normal occurrence. Um, anybody like scan the room? Anyone had a family member raised from the dead in the last 10 years? Scan. Nope, nobody. Okay. And Christians have always taught if Jesus rose from the dead, you better listen to what he said. If he didn't raise from the dead, then ignore it all. Like Christians have always made that the linchpin that he rose from the dead. Now I could give you a lot on that, but I'll leave it be. Why, why would I follow Jesus? Maybe because he rose from the dead. Um, Maybe because he has like the most five-star reviews out of anybody ever. I know that's a very modern way to put it, but you do realize there have been more songs written about and sung to Jesus than anyone like, not just by a mile, by like a million miles. You do realize there have been more books written. I mentioned the New York Times bestsellers recently. The New York Times stopped putting the Bible on the bestseller list uh, a long, long, long time ago, because it's just assumed the Bible is the number one bestseller, like the book about Jesus is the bestseller every week without fail. Like that may push you into, huh, maybe there's something to pay attention to there. Like there's all these people over all these swaths of time, over all these cultures who have all said like following Jesus is the best. You could say the cross, right? What a demonstration of love. I, I love singing about that today that our soul wants to bless the Lord because he would redeem us, that he would restore us, that he would, that he would die for us. Like the cross is not people doing something to Jesus. The cross is Jesus doing something for us and dying for our sins. All of those would be valid reasons to say, well, that's, that's proof enough of why I should follow Jesus's words and Jesus's ways. But this morning I want to appeal to what I think may be 
the, the most human appeal. Every single one of you, without fail, now I, don't, I don't know many of you, I don't know a lot of your backstories, but I know this about you. Every one of you want to live a good life. And by good, I don't mean moral, although some of you want that, which is noble. I mean, you want the good life. Now, you may have a def- different definition of the good life from them, and they may have a different definition of the good life than them, and they may have a different definition. Whatever definition you have of it, all of you want it. And all of you, to some extent, pursue it. I know that much. And this is what Jesus said, not my words, his. He said that if you will do his, his words, his truth, and you'll do his ways, his practices, it leads to the good life. It changes you, not just for the better, it changes you for the best. Here's what he says in John. The thief comes not, or comes but for one reason, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. In contrast to that thief, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. See what he's doing? There are some people that are come to take advantage of you. I am not coming to take advantage of you. I am coming to give to you. I am coming to give you not just life, but life to the full. This is why Jesus would say elsewhere in John that the words that I speak, my words are spirit and they are life. Here's how Jesus says it in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You can read it on your own time. It's kind of like Jesus' manifesto for living. He gets to the end of that sermon and he says, the ones, here it is, verse 24, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, if you will take in my words and my ways, you'll do them. I will liken him unto a wise man that builds his house upon a rock. It, why would I want to build my house on a rock? Well, the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon the house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it was founded on a rock. What is he saying? Jesus' is, his self-attestation is my words and ways are going to lead you to life. They're going to lead you to life abundantly, the good life. My words and ways are going to construct your life in such a way that when the storm comes, and the storm's coming. I don't know if it's coming like it comes for the Goins family and they lose their son a few months ago out of nowhere. I don't know if it's coming because you lose your job. I don't know if it's coming because you get a cancer diagnosis. I don't know how it's coming, but we all know this, the storm's coming. Build it my way and it will be able to withstand the rigors of life. I am giving you something that will hold. I am giving you something that is sturdy. I am giving you a way to go about life that you can't find anywhere else. And isn't this what we're chasing? This is what we all want. And I know there's so many versions of it. I I get it. I get that there's a, just pursue your sexuality and whatever desires you have, none of them are malformed. They're all just perfectly neat and orderly. Just do whatever you want sexually. I get there's like a a rainbow version of the good life. I I know that's out there and people, they, they go that way. I know there's a materialism version of the good life, right? 
I call it the Conor McGregor version. Just as many suits, as many yachts, as many cars, as many things as you can get. That is what the good life is all about. I got money. I understand that there's so many things you could buy into. There's a success version of the good life. I've learned this about Western PA people. It's a, it's a work hard culture. I don't care if you're blue collar or white collar job. It's a work hard culture. And I love that. I love that. Many times though, that's driven for the, all the wrong reasons because I'm pursuing the success version of the good life, like the Trump version of the good life. As long as I'm successful and I build the businesses and I do the things and people respect me because I've, uh, because I've done A, B, and C, who cares how many bodies I leave in my wake? Like as long as I get the job done and I'm successful, then that's what the good life is. And Jesus says, look, I have a version of the good life. that It's not like any of those. If you will take my word and my ways, it'll stand, it'll work. It will produce life and life abundantly. And here's my challenge, I'm done. My challenge is, number one, if you came in the room this morning and you would say, I'm on Team Jesus. Like I came in today already on Team Jesus. Please understand, there is, there is no concept in the Bible of people who say, I'm on Team Jesus, be my savior, get my little get out of hell free card in my back pocket. But I don't really pay attention to your words that much. And I don't really want to practice your practices or, or do your ways. Like that idea just didn't exist for the early followers of Jesus. For him to be your savior meant he was also your Lord. Like you're not going to do it perfectly. <laughs> you're going to mess up. It's going to take a long time to, to implement fully but every person who was on Team Jesus saw themselves as an apprentice who was going to want to try to get his truth and his ways into their life as much as they possibly could. And I hope that if you're on Team Jesus, that that's your goal. Like, and maybe that renews afresh in you that like, I'm kind of taking some of the world's truth and then some of Jesus, I want to do money Jesus's way, but I want to do sexuality my way. Like that, that's not going to work. Life to the full is not going to be produced. But also, if you're not on Team Jesus, I don't, I don't know your story or background for many of you, but if you're not, there's a million reasons to join the team. He rose from the dead. He died for your sins out of love. He has more five-star reviews than anybody. But maybe today, if I could say it this way, maybe it's just that you want the good life. I think that's no, an okay way to say it. Like Jesus has the good life on offer. And if you're willing to like go all in with him and become his follower, then he'll take you. He'll take you just how you are. Mess, bad habits, history, skeletons in the closet, whatever. Now, he doesn't want to keep you as you are. He wants to change you to look like him. But man, oh man, oh man. He will gladly take you on his team and say, let's do life my way. Accept me, believe me, hitch your wagon to me and, and let's, let's go forward. And if you've never made that decision personally, then man, I hope that you will. I'd, I'd be the first one to raise my hand and put a five-star review next to his name. I hope that you will today. Let's take a minute, let's pray. Father, we thank you 
that we can come together. It's been so much fun to sing. It's been so much fun to try to think about our lives, try to think about the life that you have an offer. Lord, we're about to enjoy food and, and just hanging out and just a good time with each other. But Lord, right now in these moments, for two minutes, I pray that you would speak to hearts. I pray that those that are in this room would sense that we're not here alone, that you're here as well. And I pray that you would speak, that you'd move. If you're in the room and you are a follower of Jesus, you came in that way and you want his words, you want his ways. If that's your testimony this morning, I'm, I'm already on team Jesus and I've, I wanna do life his way. Would you just in the quietness of this moment, you can just kind of stay in a spirit of prayer right now. Would you just slip up your hand and say, that's me. I'm on his team and I want his words and I want his ways. Okay, if you just, you can put your hand down, but if you raise your hand, would you tell him that? Would you tell him that? In the same way that it would be refreshing for your spouse to hear, baby, I wanna be the best spouse I can be this year. I wanna be better than ever. You think it would be refreshing to the ears of Jesus to hear Jesus, more than ever, I wanna do it your way. I want your words. I want your truth. If you're in the room and you, you did not come in saying, you know what, I'm on team Jesus, I'm his follower, like that's me, but you would like to be, you can. We've already talked about it. He, he died for your sins, he rose from the dead and he offers you life. If you've never taken that step, but you would like to, then right now in the quietness of this moment, would you call out to him? It doesn't have to be out loud, not, not verbally, but in, in your own heart, would you call out to him and would you put your faith in him? Maybe pray something like this in, in your heart. Say, Jesus, today, I trust in you. I want you to change me. I want your life to the full. So today I'm putting my trust in you and in you alone. I believe what you said and I'm going all in. Today I ask you to be the Lord of my life. I don't want you to be a side project. I don't want you to be part of my life. I wanna go all in. Now it doesn't have to be those words, that's not a script. But man, if you will put your faith in Jesus and trust him, he wants to guide you, he wants to lead you. He'll take you on his team every single time.